was the baby born in a manger that we celebrate at Christmas? This is a question everyone has to answer, and it's one that divides people across the world and throughout history. In this Christmas message, David Platt highlights the mystery of Christ's incarnation based on Colossians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. The baby born in Bethlehem was both fully God and fully man, the one through whom all things were made, yet who walked among us. And it is only through Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we can be saved. Each of us must respond to him. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, The Mystery of Christmas. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to to find Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Here's the question we've got to ask at Christmas. We must dare to ask, who is Jesus? Who is this baby born in a manger? This is a historic, important, awesome, personal question. It's historic. This was the major question debated by church leaders during the first few centuries of the church. Heresies abounded based on, based on answers to this question. It's important, it's vital, essential. This question obviously drives the wedge between traditional Judaism and Christianity, right? This question is the stumbling block for for Muslims, for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Unitarians when they think about Christianity. This is historic, important, it is an awesome question when you think about it to, to say that the baby in the manger is God in the flesh. That is, that is probably the most staggering claim in all of Christianity. You think about it with me. Once you accept that claim, everything else makes sense. Is it really that astounding to see Jesus walking on the water if we know that he created the water? Is it really that astounding to see him take five loaves and two fish and feed over 5,000 people when we know that he created the loaves and the fish and the stomachs of every single person that's digesting the food? Is it really that astounding that he is telling people that are dead to come back to life that he himself comes back to life? When you think about it, once you receive, accept, believe, embrace the incarnation... It's not really that astounding that Jesus rose from the dead. What's astounding is that he died in the first place, right? This is one awesome thought. And if Jesus is God, if this baby is God, then this is too awesome to drown out with stockings and sleigh bells this time of year. And it's a personal question. The answer to this question has ramifications for every single person in this room and every single person in all history, all 6.8 billion people on the planet. All of them, their lives are dependent on how they answer this question. Their lives for all of eternity, your life for all of eternity is dependent on how you answer this question. Who you say Jesus is determines everything about how you live. This question determines everything about how, how we live. And so, so I want to focus in on this question. I want us to realize, even in the church, if we're not careful, around Christmas we will talk about 
shepherds and angels and wise men and Joseph and Mary and mangers and oxen and this and that. But the mystery of Christmas is not found primarily in the circumstances of the birth of Jesus. The mystery of Christmas is found primarily in the identity of the baby in the manger. Not primarily in the circumstances of his birth, but the identity of this baby. And this is where the mystery lies. In the shocking reality that God has revealed his glory in a crying, screaming, bedwetting baby. Looking up into the sky, only able to wiggle around in his bed. That is an astounding thought. So, so I want us to look at this text, and we've already read verse 5 and 6, that lead us to this, this first truth about the baby that we, we need to see. And we're going we're gonna to look at it, and we're going to pause and worship. Then we're going to look at another truth, and we're going to pause and worship, and so on. First truth, the baby in the manger is God. The baby in the manger is God. Now, we don't have time to go all over Scripture thinking about how we see this in God's Word. But this is the testimony of all Scripture. It's what Philippians 2, 6 says. He was in the form, the nature of God. We don't have time to go to all these places, so you might write them down. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Now, how do we know this? Well, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Jesus himself testified to his divinity. He said that he is one with the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. All of the I am statements all over the book of John. Especially John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus claiming pre-existence, existence before Abraham as the I am. And the people knew that he was claiming to be God because they tried to stone him as soon as he said that. He claimed that he was one with the Father, that he has authority to forgive sin and judge men. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, healing of the paralytic. Before Jesus heals him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd responds, who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew that he was claiming divinity by claiming the prerogative and the right and the authority to forgive sins. This was what was most amazing for C.S. Lewis. He walked away saying, for, for this man to claim that when someone else sins, he is the one who is offended. And, and to judge men, John chapter 5 Verse 16 all the way to, I think, verse 47, you see a picture of Jesus saying that he is the judge of all men, that all men will stand before him in judgment one day. And he has power over nature, disease, and death. He's calming storms. He's telling the wind and the waves to stop. He's, he's feeding all these people with five loaves and two fish. He's healing people of diseases ultimately rising from the dead based on his own power and in his own authority. All of these realities and the words and works of Jesus point to the fact that he is God. So listen to him and then listen to others. The testimony of others in Scripture. He is the eternal creator of all things. 
This is the beginning of John's gospel. Instead of John taking us to a manger, John says, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, through Christ, this is John 1, 1 through 3, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created. All things were created by him and for him. Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. He is the eternal creator of all things, and he is the sovereign sustainer of all things. This is a great verse. Colossians 1.17. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the sovereign Lord and God. Jesus showing us this, saying this, others saying this, culminates. One, one great verse, John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas, after Jesus has risen from the grave, Thomas comes to Jesus and he, when he sees him, the resurrected Lord, he says, my Lord and my God. And this was Jesus' chance if, if he did not believe he was God, if he did not know that he was God, to, to say to Thomas, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You missed it, Thomas. But no, this is Jesus receiving praise as Lord and God and others giving him praise as Lord and God. So here's the deal. If that is true about what Jesus did and said and about what others said, then we've got a few options. If Jesus said and did these things and if people around him said these things, then there's only a few different options. Number one, we can say Jesus is a legend. Is he a legend? Is all of this just made up? All these gospel accounts, are they just created, manufactured out of nowhere? We don't have time to dive in in depth into this, but the reality is there is more historical reliability and verifiability for the gospel accounts than for any other book in the ancient world. Secular and religious anthropological scholars, archaeological scholars alike all testify to the truthfulness of the gospels. So some would say, well, no, it's just all made up. It's just a legend. Well, if he's not a legend, then is he a liar? Is he a liar? Almost all people, pagan, secular scholars, even say that Jesus was a humble and meek leader. Now, if Jesus went around saying that he was God and he was not God, would you call him humble? If I come on the scene claiming to be divine, is your first response, that is one of the most humble guys I've ever seen? No. So if he was claiming to be God and he knew he wasn't God, then that would make him a liar. You say, well, maybe he was claiming to be God and he actually thought he was, but he wasn't. That would make him a lunatic. It's the third option. If Jesus said he was God and he wasn't lying, then he was just nuts. Now, obviously, very, very few people in history have called him mentally ill. Even secular scholars have called him one of the greatest religious teachers in the history of the world. But I want you to see that that is not possible. It is not possible for Jesus to be one of the greatest religious teachers in the history of the world. Because at the core of his teaching was the claim that he was divine that he was God. And unless you're willing to embrace that, then he's either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or, or he is Lord. 
C.S. Lewis put this best in the argument he described. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Jesus fully identifies with God. The baby in the manger is, just as we sung a few minutes ago, Emmanuel, God with us. I want us to think briefly about this next truth. The the truth that this baby in the manger is not only God, the baby in the manger is human. He is born in the likeness of, of man, nature of a servant. Literally, God in the flesh. God as a human, with a human body. Born physically, as a boy, with a body. A body that would get hungry and thirsty. A body that would need sleep. Do not believe away in a manger. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Not true. What parent has ever said that about their baby? Babies cry a lot. And he was a baby with a human body, a human mind. Luke 2.52 says he would grow in wisdom. He would learn to eat and talk and read and write. This is his humanity with human emotions. He would laugh and cry. His heart would become troubled. He would be overwhelmed with sorrow. He would experience joy and anger. I want you to see that Jesus not only fully identifies with God. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus fully identifies with us. Do not minimize his humanity. And in the process, miss the beauty of his identification with you and me. God is not far off from us, aloof, apart from us. He is indeed with us. He is familiar with our struggles. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was tempted just as we are. Whether it was in the desert with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Whether it was Peter saying, no, you can't go to the cross. Whether it was sweating blood in Gethsemane, Gethsemane at the thought of the cup before him. Whether it was people yelling to him on the cross. If you're the son of God, bring yourself down from there. Hebrews 2 says he has been tempted and therefore he is able to help those who are tempted. He is familiar with our struggles. He's familiar with our sorrow. A man of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says, capable of unparalleled sympathy with us. And familiar with our suffering. Obviously most clearly exemplified in the cross. I want you to think about the beauty of Christ's humanity as it relates to your pain and your weaknesses and your struggles and your sorrow and your suffering even in this room. I want you to see that this is not just theological high talk about humanity and divinity. This comes right down to where you live. There's, do you remember the term? We, we've talked about it. It's been a while. Called sympathetic resonance. Uh, I'm going to do something dangerous and come over here to the piano. 
with Joel. Uh, uh, there's a term, musical term, called sympathetic resonance. And this term is used to describe how if you had, if we had two pianos, another piano just like this on the other side of the stage, and you were to hit one note on one piano, like middle C, what would happen is, on the other side of the stage, in that piano, the strings that correspond to middle C would slightly and gently resound. I'm not making this up. Oxford companion to music. Sympathetic resonance. That when you strike one note on one instrument, there's an immediate resonance in a similar instrument. You say, well, thanks for the music lesson theory. What's the point? Here's the point. When you walk through grief and sorrow, and pain. I want you to know that there is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, a Savior who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, who knows grief and pain and sorrow just as you do. And when this note is struck in your instrument, it resounds with resonance from heaven. He is not Unlike us, he is like us, able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So that when you or I walk through all the different things that we walk through in this life, to know that there is a Savior on high who resonates with all of it, our struggles and our sorrow and our suffering. This is wonderful truth. This baby is the sinless Savior. Humbled, obedient to death on a cross. This is revelation by humiliation. The sovereign creator becomes, get this, a slave of creation. Sovereign creator of all becomes the slave of all. Being found in appearance as a man, verse 7 says. Now that sounds like it's just a repeat of being made in human likeness. But the reality is, there's something else that Philippians 2 is pointing us to here. Yes, he was man. But when it says being found in appearance as a man, the focus is on how others perceived him. Now follow with me here. This is huge. How others perceived him. Other people perceived him as a man. As one who was just like them. You go to Matthew chapter 13 and you see, even in his own hometown, they say, where did this man get all these things? He's just a carpenter's son. And they were offended at him. The people were looking at him like they were no different from them. See the humility here. The Creator stooped to a point where he was not even recognized by his creation. He whose glory is known throughout the whole earth is not even acknowledged by the people in front of him. His chosen people all throughout the Old Testament for that matter. Not only was he not known by them, but he was subject to them. He obeyed his parents. 
That's weird when you think about it. Isn't it to obey the parents that you made? (laughs) Surely there was a temptation at some point to say, "Who, who are you to tell me what to do? I formed you. And, and he, he, was, he was fed by people. As a baby, he, as he grew, worked for people. How would, how would it feel to be employed by someone that you crafted with your own hand and to submit to their authority as your employer? This is the picture. Think about how this is being worked out. Not even the most religiously devout people in Israel recognized him. In fact, John 8, 48 says, you are a Samaritan and a demon. In other words, you're a traitor and a devil. That's that's how they responded to him. All the way until the day when they falsely accused him and put him through a mock trial and spit in his face. And he didn't say a word. This is revelation by humiliation. He humbled himself. And it's salvation by substitution. He became obedient to death The perfect son pays the price for sin. For him to be obedient to death when he had no sin and the payment for sin is death. The reality is he was in his humanity and divinity uniquely qualified to be a substitute for our sins. This is why, to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I didn't die for you and you didn't die for me. We weren't crucified for each other because we have sin in us. We are not able to be a substitute for each other in this way. You think about it, in order for a mediator to reconcile two parties together, that mediator must be intimately familiar with both parties. That's the picture. John Stott said the possibility of substitution rests on the identity of the substitute. What makes Jesus the unique mediator is that he is fully God, fully able to satisfy divine Wrath do sin. And he is fully man, fully able to stand in the place where you and I deserve to be. And this is why he came. Amidst amidst the mystery of the incarnation, do not miss the purpose of the incarnation. The reality is Jesus came to die. Now that... That sounds kind of normal to our ears because the reality is for all of us in this room, death is inevitable, right? Death is inevitable for any one of us 
all of us, each of us in this room, because we have sin. But he had no sin. Death was not inevitable for him. The perfect son, perfectly obedient. And people will try to magnify many of the things that Jesus did. Even secular scholars saying, well, he came to teach love and to model service and to show humility and he came to show patience and kindness and he healed people of diseases, all of these good things. And yes, he did. But the reality is, if he did all of those things and stopped there, he would not be Savior. In order for him to save people from sin, then he had to die. He had to pay the price that you and I were due. And this is why from the very beginning, you see Jesus, even in his ministry, talking about he's going to a cross. He's going to a cross. There's coming a day when the Son of Man will suffer and be killed. This is why he came. Oh, think about this. Amidst the images that we have when it comes to Christmas, to realize that that those sweet tender hands in a manger wriggling around were were fashioned to one day have nails thrust into them. That those soft pink feet unable to walk were made so that one day they would walk up a dusty hill to a cross. That this precious head was formed so that one day soldiers would force a crown of thorns deep into it. That this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was created so that one day Soldiers would pierce it through with a sword and blood and water would flow. The purpose of the incarnation, he was born to die. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, even death on a cross, it's as if he is, is, is overwhelmed because this is a shameful death by first century standards no experience more loathsomely degrading than this. The God who created the universe suffering the ultimate in human degradation, hanging naked in a sky, in the sky before a mocking world. Shameful death, a painful death, the most torturous of all possible deaths, beaten and scourged and lashed, and then nailed on piece of wood and a cursed death you think about this from a gentile point of view particularly a roman point of view to think of someone crucified not even the most cruel roman citizen would have to go through that then you think about it from a jewish point of view galatians chapter 3 verse 13 quoting deuteronomy chapter 21 saying that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed of god this is Paul saying, even death on a cross, the most shameful, painful, cursed death, this is what he was born for, to die like that, so that as a result, we might be born again to live. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See the beauty of incarnation coupled with crucifixion. His shame becomes our honor. We stand before God deserving shame and death. And God, God clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. And we are honored in his presence. His pain becomes our joy by his stripes, by his wounds, his suffering. We are healed and his curse becomes our blessing. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All of this because he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This baby in a manger is worthy. He is worthy of adoration as the sinless Savior born on Christmas to die for sinners. This baby in a manger is the exalted Lord. This this is the heart of the New Testament. It is the heart of the early church. Almost 750 different times in the New Testament, Jesus is confessed as Lord. And, and the heart of the Christmas story is that this, this baby is indeed the, the Lord of all. And then you think about what Philippians 2, 9 through 11 is saying from, from the perspective of both, of both the Jewish people as well as Gentiles and and you realize for him to be Lord means that he reigns in the utmost position. It says God exalted him. Now, you get into the original language of the New Testament here, and there's a rare compound verb that's used. It's literally God super eminently exalted him. Like the picture is an emphasis on Christ being exalted to a place where there is none higher than him. Placed over all things. He is not the greatest among many gods. He is the only God in a class by himself. And this picture of the Lord, like to think through what we've read through all this year. And we've seen God supremely revealed all throughout the Old Testament as Yahweh the Lord. And it's His name that we saw Him preeminently exalted as all throughout the Old Testament to see Jesus exalted then as Lord. There is none higher. The utmost position. He is Lord. Reigns in the utmost position. He holds unending power. His name represents so much more than what we should call him. His name represents his authority. This is where you jump into how Gentile readers, Greek readers, Greek language would hear this word Lord, Kyrios. And this is a word that would be used to describe a master over servants. Lord, authority, to reign, to rule, to command, to demand, whatever that involves. And the reality is Jesus has the authority to save anyone who trusts in him. He has the power to save you from your sins. And he has the power to rule your life. 
the authority to rule every decision you make, every possession you own, every dream you have. There are some in our day who have tried to make a distinction here and say, you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. It is not true. He, as Savior, is the exalted Lord. And it is foolishness to claim salvation from your sins without submission to His reign. He holds unending power. He deserves universal praise. Every knee shall bow. Literally, Bend the knee. An expression used in the Old Testament to show great reverence and submission and worship. Uh, The picture of a worshiper who cannot stand upright in the presence of the one that is being worshipped. And so fall on your knees. Every single knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers all the knees. Every angel, every holy angel, every fallen angel. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil and his demons will bow the knee. And every single person in this room, every single person on this planet, and every single person in all of history will bend the knee before Christ as Lord from every tongue, every language will make this confession. He deserves universal praise and he fulfills the ultimate purpose. God, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. This is a picture. We're seeing mystery of the incarnation. We're seeing Father and Son and Holy Spirit in this whole picture. Father exalting Son to the highest place, giving Him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not put a period on it there. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we're saying here, you put this with all that we see in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the reality that God the Father sent God the Son to pay the price for sin, to redeem us, reconcile us to Himself, that God the Spirit opens our eyes to see His glory, see His beauty, to see our need, to confess Him as Lord to the glory of, of Christ, to the glory of the Father. God magnified in the humiliation of Christ, God magnified in the exaltation of Christ so that resounding from our lips and our lives, praise, glory, and honor to God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So the decision we need to make, the decision that every person in this room is confronted with in the mystery of Christmas Will you reject Jesus as Lord? Do not call him a good teacher. Not possible. 
Call him a legend. Call him a liar. Call him a lunatic. But not a good teacher. Reject him as legend, liar, or lunatic. Reject him as Lord now and bow the knee then. Here's, here's the key that, that I, I want every person in this room to hear. The reality is, one day, every single person in this room is going to bow the knee and call him Lord. That is, that is not up for decision. That is determined. Every knee will one day bow and call him Lord. The question is, will you bow the knee now or will you bow the knee when it is too late? And, and if you wait until it is too late, after, after this life is over, I would be remiss in this week leading up to Christmas not to share with you based on the authority of God's Word that if you wait to bow the knee until then you will experience eternal condemnation. You will, you will stand alone in your sin before a holy God. And you will receive the just due payment for your sin in his infinite judgment. Please see Christmas as more than just a series of commercial games for consumeristic minds. This is eternal reality at stake with how you respond to the mystery of Christmas. Reject him as Lord. Bow the knee then, eternal condemnation. Oh, I want to urge every person in this room, revere Jesus as Lord. Bow the knee today. Confess his rule and his reign, his good and gracious and merciful rule and reign over your life. Trust him to forgive you of all your sins, to cover over your sins with his sacrifice on the cross. And say to the one who formed you, who made you, who knows what is best for you, I trust you. I confess that you are indeed Lord. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Bow the knee today and be confident of this. What lies ahead is eternal celebration where we will delight in the declaration of the praise of Christ to the glory of God the Father in heaven forever. C.S. Lewis summed it up best when he said, what are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must either accept or reject this story. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.